Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all new version of their cloud accounting software to help the self-employed. Create and send professional looking invoices in less than 30 seconds. Set up online payments with just a couple of clicks and get paid up to four times faster. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial at freshbooks.com SP and enter Smart People Podcast in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's freshbooks.com SP and enter Smart People Podcast in the How Did You Hear About Us section podcast where we talk to smart people but not necessarily done by smart people that is an awesome question this one goes down probably on one of my top five hey i like nutrition i like to eat food this is the coolest thing ever we're gonna do this forever i wish i paid more attention in that class you know i'm gonna be honest i don't understand that as a man i just i don't get it welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, and thanks so much for tuning in. This was one of those episodes that kind of left me sitting next to my microphone as soon as it ended and just thinking about how could it change my life, my trajectory, my focus, and my actions. And it reminded me yet again of why I do this podcast. To be introduced to not just brilliant people, but different ways of thinking and different ways of being. As we discuss in this episode, logic, learning, knowledge might actually be the enemy to what we want, which is kind of weird to say coming from a podcast dedicated to knowledge and learning. But it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently this idea of content creation and so much information in the world and so much knowledge. 
In fact, I've spent so much of the past decade or so of my life just trying to accumulate knowledge. And I wonder to what end now I did it to find something I was passionate about to change my life for the better. And I have to say it's moved in that direction. Most days I like what I do, which has been hard to say at times. I'm making good money enough to live the life that I need. Of course, there's always that want bigger house, more windows, more bedrooms, etc. But I'm continuing to think that most of that just gets in the way of the things that I want to do, which is spend time with those that I love, have conversations with amazing people, then feel joy. And so I've actively taken a role in lessening the amount of content I take in. I still listen to plenty of podcasts and books on tape and read and things like that, but I think I was on a whole new level. I was signing up for every newsletter I could. I was clicking on different Facebook ads about different projects and things to do, and it just got out of control. I was also a slave to multiple emails and the need to respond immediately, and I've kind of let that go as well. Needless to say, though, there's still parts that are missing. And in this interview, I think I found why. Because although I can let some of the information go, I can let some of the requirements of modern life go, I don't know if I've properly replaced them with things that bring me back to me. And that's what I took away from this episode. We're talking to a man named Philip Shepard, Specifically, we're talking about his new book called Radical Wholeness, The Embodied Present in the Ordinary Grace of Being. Philip is recognized as an international authority on embodiment. His unique techniques have been developed to transform our experience of self and world and are based on the vision articulated in his first book, New Self, New World, and again in his newest one, Radical Wholeness. The approach he takes heals the frantic, restless pace of the intelligence in the head, which tends to run on overdrive, by uniting it with the deep, present, and calm intelligence of the body. Philip teaches workshops around the world on these techniques and on his approach to embodiment and this idea of radical wholeness. I want to highlight right now, if you like what you hear, his website is philipshepherd.com. That's Philip with one L and Shepherd, like Shepherd of Sheep.com. And we will link to that in the show notes. We are at smartpeoplepodcast.com. If you like this episode and think it might help somebody out, the best thing you could do, the thing that really would be great is to help us reach more people. And that only happens if you feel that it's worthy. And you know what? I'm okay with that. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Philip Shepherd. If you do and you want to let us know what you think, feel free to reach out. We're at smartpeoplepodcast.com and you can contact us directly there. Have a fantastic week and enjoy the episode. So, I mean, there's so much to cover. We'll be talking about your brand new book, Radical Wholeness. And as of this recording, so it's October 30th, it hasn't even come out yet, has it? November 21st is the big day. So how do you feel about that? Is there some anxiety leading up to a book launch? Maybe. maybe. I mean, I don't, I don't feel anxiety. I've just, 
um, worked so long on it. So it's my second book. My first book was New Self, New World, and that took me 10 years to write because it was laying a foundation for my the way I feel and experience and understand the world. And Radical Wholeness um, took five years to write, and the anxiety was with bringing it in on the deadline because it was a it, the deadline was an invitation, actually. The publisher contacted me and said, do you have anything on the go? And I said, well, yeah, I do. But the, the reality is I'd started the book six times. Uh, and I, you know, I do, I do so much touring with workshops and teachers' trainings. And when you walk away from something, it sort of dies off. Like all those tendrils that are just waiting to be woven into the text – they're gone. So then you, you start from scratch. Right. No, I actually, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So like the, the, the anxiety was being, having enough time in the editing process to let it be what it needed to be. And, um, and, and I'm, I'm so happy with it now. So I just, you know, I just look forward to it. Like a, I, I feel a little like a thoroughbred horse in the race stall, you know, it's going to begin you know, just let that door open and let's go. Right, right. I can imagine. Well, well, actually, let's start off somewhere else. Let's talk about this. So you mentioned you do workshops and things like that. And you also were telling me about this island you live on. So I think it'd be a good place to get a sense of what you do, where you live, and uh, and, and what you enjoy most about all of it. <laughs> all right. Um, where I live is in this funky community of uh, 260 homes on an island that the island actually creates the harbor um, in my hometown, Toronto. And it's a car-free community and it takes up maybe 5% of the island and the rest of the island is parkland. And, you know, there's a beach five minutes, three minutes really from my house that looks out over Lake Ontario and let, let me just say, because there are no cars, the community is continuously weaving itself into new relationships. So, you know, I take a boat home, I talk to a neighbor on the boat, then I, you know, my, my home is a three, four minute walk from the ferry, but it can take 10, 15 minutes because you meet somebody gardening and you stop and you have a chat or you help someone with their groceries. And so there's all this interaction that is made possible having removed the car from the equation hmm. so it's a place that nourishes my soul but it also nourishes my work and the work you know how to summarize my work um we have so dissociated from the body in our culture that even our attempts to get back to the body are, are sabotage their, their expressed aims. Um, let me give you a concrete example. You know, when we think about embodiment or we learn about embodiment, we learn to listen to the body, um, which, is, which is lovely. I, you know, I've, I have nothing against it, but it's not embodiment. It's the opposite of embodiment in one way. Because if you're, if you're listening to the body, if you're told listen to your body what what is implied 
in that is that there's a wall separating you from your body. It's like your body's in the room next door and it's prudent to put your ear to the wall to see what's happening on the other side of it. Uh, do you see what I mean by that? So, I do. So, so the, the, very, the very exhortation to listen to your body is more deeply entrenching the very divide that you're trying to overcome. So my work is not about listening to the body. It's about listening to the world through the body. And, and it recognizes the seamlessness of our union with the whole. We feel ourselves, we're trained to feel ourselves independent of the world around us. And, you know, the very concept of independence is just a fantasy. Like the word, the word should be um, put in, in quotes or something because it's, there is no independence. Nothing is independent from anything else. Everything de depends on everything. Everything leans on everything. Everything is in relationship with everything. Like every, you know, quantum physics shows us that every molecule in the universe is held by the universe, is, is called into existence by the universe, and in turn supports, is felt throughout every other molecule. It's just a, an incredibly and utterly seamless unity in which we live and we've created a culture that denies the reality and pulls us into the fantasy and the fantasy is supported and reinforced and reified by the fact that we live in our heads because when you when you withdraw your consciousness in the body and live in your head you feel independent of the world you you feel independent of the body itself so we've created a headist culture that that is more and more mired in its own fantasies about about relationship and the world around us so much to cover there and you mentioned that we've created a culture that you know breeds this kind of dependent mindset or living in the head when do you think that happened and and by that i'm saying did we ever have a culture where we didn't think that way. Was there a time when we truly lived in the body? Yeah, I mean, there are two, there are two sides to that. One is for sure. I mean, you, you look at the, at the art of the sort of late Paleolithic, early Neolithic, um, and it's, it's, it, you know, our allegiance was to the mother as, as a culture. Um, we the art shows up there's there's there even um it's interesting there are uh graves where there's a navel stone put on the grave now we you know when you bury someone you have a headstone <sighs> they had a navel stone um and what happens you can see it in language as agriculture takes hold of our culture we begin to control our world and the moment you the moment you put a seed into the ground everything changes um, suddenly that patch of ground in which the seed is deposited is yours and suddenly the plant growing up beside your seed is a weed there were no weeds before there's just the expression of of the goddess in everything. Um, the animal that comes along that might eat your plant is now vermin. 
Um, the tree that casts shade on your plant has to be cut down. Uh, you know, so the whole the whole unity of the world is suddenly split into good and bad. And th those good and bad values are exclusively self-serving. And as, as agriculture took over and we be began to master the world around us, and more importantly, control the world around us, and control ourselves in the same way, you can see in, in language how that center of our thinking began to rise from the belly, where, where it was experienced in the early Neolithic, up through the body, eventually to the head. And one of the most interesting parts of that journey occurs in Homer's Greece, where Homer uses a word freen or freenies over and over and over in the Odyssey and the Iliad. But to translate that word into English is almost impossible because it means both mind and diaphragm. They experienced their thinking in the diaphragm. And then, you know, again, by, by Plato's day, 350 BC or whatever, um, it's in the head. And we've been there becoming in general, more and more abstract with every passing century. It's difficult to wrap my brain around because of how indoctrinated or ingrained this idea of self and dependence and the brain is in all of us these days, right? So having not really been subjected to your line of thinking, I find myself, I want to understand it. But <laughs> but by wanting to understand it, I'm living in my brain and I'm you know what I'm saying? So I'm like at odds with how to even proceed. If we're living in our body, how are we using our brains, which is the manner in which we see and interpret the world? So a couple of things. One is we have three brains. So we're used to talking about the brain as if. The head uh, was the capsule that contained our intelligence. There's a brain in the belly, which is uh, known as the enteric nervous system. Uh, that is, it's not a subset of the brain in the head. Um, it's, it's independent. The, you know, you can be in a vegetative state, but the brain in the belly keeps going because it's uh, one of its primary functions is to deal with digestion, which which is assimilating the world into the body and the body into the world. What do you uh. think of it? Um, so there are cultures, the Japanese, the Incan, the Mayan, the Chinese that recognize that intelligence in the belly. When they come back to their deepest truth, their profoundest understanding, it's to return to that center of the body's intelligence deep deep in the pelvic bowl um and that you know the the brain in the head is where we can consciously think the brain in the belly is where we can consciously be so we have exalted reason in our culture we think reason is the be all and the end all and reason is an impoverished way of approaching anything that matters in your life. What I mean by that is you can't, you can't reason your way into the present. You can't say, oh, I want to be present and, and get there by reason. You, you know, you're awake in the night. You can't reason your way back to sleep. 
you can like relax into the body and and come back to its need for sleep but if you're up in your head trying to to reason your way that that won't get you there you can't reason your way into love or fulfillment so reason is fabulous i have nothing against reason but reason when it's being used to fulfill its promise it is a servant to that deeper intelligence in the belly and that deeper intelligence in the belly is the intelligence in our being that feels and understands wholeness. And again, wholeness, you, you, you cannot know wholeness for all our, our vaunted um, celebration of knowledge. You can never know wholeness. It's just beyond the ken of any anyone. But you can feel wholeness. You can feel the wholeness of your body, the wholeness of your being. You can feel the wholeness of the present. And to me, that's where it's got to begin, because wholeness is the one reality. You know what really resonates for me is I know I am a top-down person. I know I put an exorbitant amount of energy into thinking and logic and uncovering and understanding. And it's at the core of, I think, where a lot of my anxious tendencies have come from. And when you talk about you can't reason your way into the present, it's actually something I wanted to ask you because with all the mindfulness initiatives out there, I find myself oftentimes in situations where I want to be very present. So oftentimes I'll be with my son and we'll be doing something great. And by great, it could be just swinging or uh, at a farm or whatever. And I'll think, okay, Chris, you want to remember this. You want to be present for this. You want to feel, you know, the presence. So just be there. Take a take a snapshot in your mind. And then so counterintuitively, what I uncover is I'm in my head trying to be in the present. And I think that's what you're describing, but I don't know how to get out of it. And that's what this interview is going to be all about. But I think I'm starting from that top down since so many people live in their heads. I think just understanding the difficulty to move into the body is so critical. Yeah, I mean, even even the, the, that phrase of, you know, taking a snapshot in your mind. Um, our, there's so much. Um, there's so much to say around that. It's um, everything in our culture is top down. Every hierarchy is is led by the head of that organization because that's the way we're taught to lead our our our, our own lives to manage ourselves. Um, you know, there's this this phenomenal undercurrent in our culture that assures us that knowledge will save us. It's like knowledge has become the new god. We sacrifice to it. We we're compelled, you know, to our cell phones, to our our devices, to get more knowledge, more information. And and you you know you you pause for one second and you say, is that true that knowledge will save us? And you realize, well, if if it were true, we'd as a as a culture, we'd be in much 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 better shape now than we were two thousand years ago. And the reality is, we've We've stretched the very systems on which we depend to the point where they're beginning to unravel. And every, every stressor on the ecosystem is the result of knowledge. So 
you know, we we discover petrochemicals and how to burn them. We make plastic. We 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 learn how to make pesticides. I mean, it goes on and on. So my contention is that knowledge is lethal if it's not counterbalanced by self-knowledge. But then we have to redefine self-knowledge because we've turned it into a kind of objective knowledge. And self-knowledge, this is where wholeness comes into it because we think, you know, we think, oh, you just dive deep within in the self and you find your truth there. And that's that's not to me how self-knowledge happens. When you when you dive within the self, you know, inner work is is crucial. But I I think of the body as a resonator and it rings to the present. Like wholeness Wholeness isn't something you achieve. Wholeness is something you can't escape. I mean, there's no stepping out of wholeness. So then the job is to surrender to it. How do you surrender to, to your reality at this moment? And that surrender, it's like we've, in our culture, we've stuffed that the bell, the resonator of the body, full of cotton balls. We we carry around all these tensions and divisions and and frozen ideas uh, within us. And how to how to find those corridors, those compartments, and soften them and open them and release the body, so that then you begin to feel the world through the body. So. The struggle you're talking about, how to be present, there's a there's a culture in Africa, the Anglo-Ive culture, that shows up how biased our view of the senses is. The Anglo-Ive culture doesn't have senses, doesn't recognize senses as we recognize them. They have they feel the world in the body. They're their, their overarching term is sesalilame, which means feel, feel at flesh inside. So they're not taking snapshots of the world. They are feeling the sights of the world in the body. They're hearing the sounds of the world in their body. They're feeling the currents of the present pulse through them. Huh. And it's a completely different thing, you know, to, to see the world with the eyes or to feel the sights of the world deep, deep in the pelvic bowl. Um, it's just um, every every one of our senses, when you look at it, imputes a boundary. We're back to the, the independence that we cling to as a culture. You know, sight, um, you know, crosses the boundary of the self and, and arrives on the receptor of the eye or hearing, you know, sounds of the world cross the boundary of the, sep of the self and arrive on the receptor of the ear. All of our senses depend on the boundary. So the primary sense in the Anglo-Ive culture is balance. And you think, well, that's weird because we talk about having a sense of balance. There's an organ in the inner ear devoted to balance. Why don't we include it as a sense? Well, balance doesn't have a boundary. It doesn't enclose us from the world. It brings us into felt relationship with the world. 
So you, you know, you feel the center of your weight in relationship to the center of the earth. And it's a very, very sensitive thing. But we don't like felt relationship. We like known relationship. So all of our senses become ways of objectively knowing the world rather than feeling it. This week's episode is brought to you by Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention, the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. And it's delivered right to your door in a small, how-did-they-do-that-sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is that you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night, risk-free, sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Listen up. Start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com smart and using smart at checkout. That's casper.com smart and offer code smart for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to the episode. I like the the analogy about balance and the inner ear, because I think in a nutshell, that kind of embodies this idea of we can think about it logically. We can talk about the mechanism by which we stand up, right? Or we can kind of feel that if you're on a boat and it's rocking, how your body instantly changes to stay upright. And, And that's more of a feeling. I don't know. That's kind of how I interpreted it yeah totally and and you know if you're out in in outer space there is no sense of balance because you're out of relationship with gravity right so balance requires felt relationship yeah totally now what about if you don't like the way it feels (laughs) because you know that's what i think my want to live in my head and many people's want or even need or reaction to go to the head is We don't like the way it feels. And so we have to get upstairs and start figuring out why that is. So we don't feel it again. Yeah, I would, I would, I would suggest that it's not so much that we don't like how it feels as that we don't know how it feels. So, so the dissociation from the body begins at such a young, young age. Um, you think of how many hours as a kid you're made as a as a young young kid made to sit at a desk and stifle the body's energy and pay attention to the head of the class which is telling you to fill your head with these ideas and then you'll you'll succeed i mean it's 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 a it's an indoctrination that that is communicated through our buildings through our our our, our habits um you know we, when we eat, we've got the placemat and our chair, and this is our space. And, you know, if Sally wants the salt and it's on the other side of you, she's not allowed to reach through your space. She has to say, Philip, would you please pass me the salt? And then I safely convey it through my space to her space and all is well. We compartmentalize everything. And, and so I, you know, we don't, we can't feel the pelvic floor. And a lot of my work is about the pelvic floor. Um, it's down amongst all those 
you know, areas that, that we're just not even allowed to, to talk about in our culture. <laughs> but, but, but the pelvic floor is the ground of your being. I mean, if you're going to come home to yourself, that's where you come. You drop down and come to rest on the pelvic floor. That feels good. Because when you come, when you come to rest on the pelvic floor, you come to rest in the present, and then you begin to partake in all those qualities we strive for directly that can never be had directly. So what I mean by that is, you know, you want, you want to find, you know, peace of mind. You want to feel grace in your life or, or harmony. Um, you, you want to feel spaciousness. Those those qualities that we yearn for and try to think our way to and, 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 and strategize our way to can never be possessed. They belong to the present. The present is utterly at peace. The present is utterly spacious. The present moves with ineffable grace. You join, you, you know, you find personal harmony not by possessing it, but through that surrender to wholeness that enables you to join the harmony of the present. So I have a question, though. <laughs> yeah. What about when we were talking about how we worship knowledge, which I absolutely that that really resonated. I, I, I like that. But we worship knowledge. Would that be saying that those cultures that didn't worship knowledge, we're better off. Because oftentimes in discussions like this, I find this kind of yearning to be in the past or in a culture that understood humans or humanity or the, the present more. But then I watch something like, and this is going to take us out of it, something like Game of Thrones or Vikings. And I think that must have sucked. Like, <laughs> All they did is live and struggle and die. Are we saying that those cultures that might have had it right were better off, even though all of the things that we have, and by things, I don't even necessarily mean physical material things. I mean, vaccines and abundance of food and warmth. I don't know. Those are things that I feel like logic has gotten us that are good things. Yeah, we... We don't want to go backwards. Um, and, you know, I think that may be thrust upon us if we keep keep going the way we're going. But but what's happened? Like if you look at if you look in, in a large scale at the evolution of our consciousness, we ex we've experienced our consciousness as a really localized phenomenon. So in the in the early Neolithic, we experienced it in the belly. In Homer's day, they experienced it in the chest. In, by, you know, by Plato's day, they were experiencing it in the head. And what, what's needed next is not, you know, a renunciation of the head. It's to bring the head into relationship with the, that deep intelligence of the body so that, so that we feel our intelligence, our consciousness, not as a localized phenomenon, but more like an, an axis that runs through the body from the pelvic floor up to the head. And, and I think that almost like a bar magnet and the way a bar magnet holds this field around us, uh, around itself, that axis uh, of consciousness in the body 
holds the field of our intelligence. And it's an inclusive intelligence. It's not an either or. It's not either the head or, you know, that, that thinking of the body. The deepest wound in our culture, one that has been inflicted on each and every one of us, is the separation of our thinking from our being. We've separated the head and its intelligence from the body and its intelligence. And when they come together, what happens is you begin to feel every thought. And it's a holistic, inclusive experience that is rich, rich, rich. And it's so different. I mean, at this point, it literally um, hurts me to contract from the body and think just in the head, which it, which for many years was my, you know, conditioned modality. Um, that transition to wholeness, to where your the whole of your being is present to the world and to your every thought, is just so much easier and richer and truer and and sidesteps that frantic um, state of should I, shouldn't I, mm-hmm. how should I, you know, all that stuff that obsesses us. The, the bottom line is you, you, you have a choice that you can guide yourself, you can contract from the body, contract from the world, and try to figure it all out and, and, and manage your way there through ideas and what should be done. Or you can drop down through the body, come to rest in the pelvic floor, feel the currents of the present, and and find guidance there. And so your thinking is no longer encased from the world. It's moving hand in hand with the world. So you're not saying shut off the thinking, right? You're not, you're not, you're saying do it in a way that is connected to how we feel as well because how do you utilize this mentality in a world in a culture that is very top down with all of our needs that have to be met what what we've done in our culture well or what's been done to us i mean it's both right is we've disabled our ability to feel the whole um we literally have forgotten what it means to listen with the whole of our being, to speak from the whole of our being, to feel the present as a whole. We've shattered the world into component parts. So we are, all we know is unintegrated ideas and unintegrated emotions. And, 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 and we're trying to paste these things together with the head. You know what? The head is brilliant. But its brilliance is its ability to pull things apart. That's what that's what the word analysis means to to break into pieces, and it's great at that. But it's incapable of of integration. So, if you want to integrate, you the only way to do it is to bring that down to rest in the pelvic bowl. Um, and that's that I, I worry because that may sound abstract, but literally you can take a thought in your head that's racing around and that's the thinking of your head. And you can allow that thought to move down through the body's intelligence 
and come to rest in that place where you encounter your core and that thinking in the head integrates and becomes the thinking of your being. And the thinking of your being is inclusive of the head. It's not exclusive. Huh. And, and all that frantic, um, obsessive agenda trying to get it right softens into the present and lets you land there. And what starts out as an unintegrated, frozen idea as it travels down through the body becomes a sensitivity. Now, that may sound kind of not very useful, but when you think about our definition of intelligence, you realize that that the part of us that has defined intelligence is the part of us that excels at analysis. And so we've defined intelligence as the ability to reason in an abstract fashion. And that's certainly one part of intelligence. But for my money, that's like a this narrow bandwidth on this massive spectrum. And when I look at that spectrum and I try to characterize it, first of all, I see our intelligence as sensitivity. And I don't care if it's a sensitivity to a child's tears, to the touch of sunlight on your face, to waves rolling in on the beach, to arithmetic relationship, any, any sensitivity is a form of intelligence. But the thing about a sensitivity is it's reactive. It's necessarily reactive. So if the retina didn't react to light, we wouldn't see. And that reactivity cannot make the information it's accessing coherent without being grounded. And that's where the body comes in. There is no groundedness in your life without the body. And so when, when that schism between our thinking and our being is healed, and your thinking, your sensitivity is able to come down and connect with that intelligence in the pelvic bowl, then you're in a place of grounded sensitivity. And, you know, as a culture, we're very, very, very clever. But we've forgotten how to live intelligently. We are, we are, you know, you look at the school system and it's almost deliberately set up to leave kids desensitized and ungrounded. So, you know, the putative aim of education is to, is to help a child flower, um, into their intellectual promise and and it is undermining the very essence of what intelligence is I, I think about that in terms of education being almost entirely if not entirely dedicated to honing one part right the brain and its the ability to analyze i think back the the story that keeps coming back to me because i want to know <laughs> how you experienced this, given that you understand both sides of the coin, right? So it's at the beginning of your book when you're talking about something that is the reason this podcast was born, is the reason a lot of people listen. Uh, you had a yearning to go one way, and then the kind of societal norm was another way. 
So I believe it was um, theater versus physics, I think it was. And one of the things that really struck me is you said the, the first obvious impediment was money, which is everything, right? It's, it's everyone's <laughs> obvious impediment initially, I think. To be honest, if I really, if I were to try to sink into my body, it would tell me to go do something that mm. would probably not support my current lifestyle and my family and all those things. So when you were at that crossroads, having lived that, having gone a certain way, understanding the you know needs of a human today and, and, and money and material goods, how do you balance those two? And what did you learn in making that decision? There are kind of there are kind of two things that come to mind. One is um, because our thinking and our being have been severed and compartmentalized. When you disconnect from the body, when you dissociate from your being, it leaves behind an emptiness that we then obsess over trying to fill. And, and we are such a restless culture. We need more and we need more and we need more. And when you bring that back to a sort of personal level, when you truly connect with your being, that itch um, is, is soothed. That itch is put to rest. And there is there is such pleasure, such joy in in a greater simplicity. You're not you're not driven um, as our consumer culture wants us to be driven. Um, but that's only I mean that's only part of part of the answer. So part of the answer is just just the sheer joy of being that is a liberation in itself. Um, but my, you know, my, my journey, that, that decision that you, that you speak of, uh, when I was 18, it was, it was born of a sense I had that my being was violated by every pretense of my culture. And it was like the it was like the adult world was was luring me uh, into a fantasy that 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 corroded my very sense of self, um, and I knew I knew it was cultural. I knew that if I remained within the milieu of my culture, I would be taken down. That it's it, you know it's it's like trying to battle the the waves of the sea. You're not going to win. <laughs> And, and so, you know, I'd been accepted to study physics, um, and that whole, that whole route was sort of laid out, you know, university and, and get a job and, and marry, have kids, house, you know, whatever. And then there was this other possibility of going to England and buying a bicycle and taking off for Japan. And it was like ridiculous. And my very life depended on it. And, uh, and you know, as I, as I cycled through Europe and the Middle East and India, I, I traveled through so many 
different cultures. I mean, even neighborhoods, you feel you feel the difference in the way they understand what it is to be human. And every culture is just that. Every culture is a story about what it means to be human. And every one of those stories I passed through was luminous. And every one of those stories was limited. But what it meant was, you know, after two years when I came back home, I came back home with the ability to ask questions that I could not have formulated if I'd remained within that milieu. It's like a fish trying to question water. It's the only reality it knows. And so that, you know, to come back to the practicalities, we we tend to fantasize and attach to a certain image of how our lives should be. And I, you know, planning and all that stuff, I, I have nothing against it if it's integrated, if it's brought back in contact with your being. But there's this other aspect. When I was traveling, you know, I didn't have a tent. I slept outside everywhere I went. And I could feel, you know, as the sun's beginning to set, I could feel the world's guidance guiding me to where it would be safe to spend the night. And I, you know, my survival depended on that. So it was a sensitivity in a way I had to develop. But that same guidance is there in my life at every moment. And our, our fantasies about, about needing to and being able to control our lives can displace us from the rich, rich experience of being nourished by the present. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. Racing against the clock to wrap up projects, prepping for meetings later in the afternoon, all while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork? Welcome to life as a freelancer. FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software to help the self-employed. It's redesigned from the ground up and custom built for the way you work. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and get paid quickly. Create and send professional looking invoices in less than 30 seconds. Set up online payments with just a couple of clicks and get paid up to four times faster. See when your client has seen your invoice and put an end to all the guessing games. FreshBooks is the perfect tool for any service-based small business. It's an absolute joy to use. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial at freshbooks.com SP and enter Smart People Podcast in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Once again, that's freshbooks.com SP and enter Smart People Podcast in the How Did You Hear About Us section. And now back to the episode. As you describe your journey on the bike, and the world guiding you. I mean, it sounds beautiful. And I know the way it's described in the book and you talk about fences, you know, in, in America, not being able to sleep outside and things like that. I have this counter story. And essentially when I felt this pull in different directions, when I was working in finance and uh, just really didn't know where I was going, why I was doing it and had 
felt disconnection really at its core in the sense of anxiety and things. I wanted to get out in nature as well. And it's still to this day where I find the most peace. So I said, I'm going to spend seven days by myself hiking through the Colorado Trail. And now I had gear and a tent and all of those things, but I really want to be by myself and just kind of feel and, and let my thoughts go. The first night I got to my destination, it started snowing. It was one of the earliest snowstorms in Colorado. <laughs> I couldn't find dry wood. I was freezing. Uh, I couldn't cook the food because I couldn't get the fire started. And I have a video still. And it's really funny. I'm in this tent and I'm like, you know, if any, if this has taught me anything, it's what our creature comforts do by us, right? What sometimes hard work can get us is that warm shower, which I alluded to earlier and things like that. So I have kind of this other experience. It's much smaller, right? Because I ended up hiking out the next day. Um, it's a long story. Like it was a, it was now raining and I had to call 911 from a payphone to get a cab to come <laughs> pick me up. And it was crazy. But um, long story short, it doesn't always work out that way, which I know is not the meaning of your story. But I am interested in, you know, in those times where you run into challenges, things where perhaps you're not guided in the right direction, you know, because you'll feel that. And in that moment, I would want to fall back into those creature comforts and the things that are cultural, as opposed to just kind of riding my bike into the wind. Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, it comes back to what is your primary relationship. And as I feel my primary relationship, it's my relationship to the present. Mm. My hunch is that as the snow came and the wood was wet and the fire wouldn't light, that you were pulled out of your body up into your head. Mm -hmm. What am I going to do? What What's going to happen to me? And, and that that um, sort of um, takes over. And I may be mistaken, but but I have a sense that that those you know that conditioned um, oh my God this isn't this isn't what I planned this isn't uh, the plan right this right is right not the plan takes over and then and then you and then you are numbed to the guidance of the present because those cognitive processes. Um, kick in and go round and round and the anxiety builds and then you got to do something. Um, there's a guy, you know, speaking of the finance world, there's a researcher, John Coates, who uh, was a Wall Street trader and then he became a neuroscientist, which doesn't seem like a entirely <laughs> linear route from Wall Street. But then he came back to Wall Street as a neuroscientist to study a phenomenon that, you know, there were times when he was, he was a high frequency trader, he'd be mm -hmm. making a trade, and it would just feel right. And it turned out um, that, that, that his, his hunch, his gut feeling was accurate. And he's and he and he realized as a neuroscientist, this phenomenon hadn't really been studied. So he set up a, a a form of research whereby he he measured 
in a sense, what the body knows by studying cortisol responses of people uh, on the trading floor. And he also measured their cognitive assessment of a trade. So, so you know, he, he'd give them a questionnaire. How, how did you feel about this trade? How well do you think it's going to do? And meanwhile, he, he had this um, data that showed what the body knew as the trade was being made. Mm. And it doesn't take long, you know, it doesn't take many days to see how the hunch panned out. And what the body knew correlated exactly to the actual risk of the trade that was, was being made. What the cognitive assessment um, deduced had no relationship to the trade, to its success or failure, like no relationship. And so he, he went another step with a, 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 a second round of research that said, okay, if, if the body knows, you know, with that much sensitivity in an abstract environment like Wall Street, then people who are more in touch with their bodies as traders should do better than traders who aren't. So he basically asked people at random, he selected these, you know, I think 18 traders and through the course of the day, asked them at, at random intervals, I guess he texted them or something, what is your heart rate at this moment? And, and they all wore heart rate monitors that they couldn't read uh -huh. and they weren't allowed to like, Put their put their thumb on their vein. Mm -hmm. They had to feel their heart rate, and some just guessed. They had no idea what their heart rate was, and some could feel it reliably. They could tell you. They could feel the heart in the body, and those who could feel the heart in the body, when when John Coates looked at the previous year's trades, had done s significantly better than those who couldn't. Wow. So. So there is a resource in the body that has nothing to do with wishful thinking and everything to do with our survival on, on this planet in the course of our evolution. And it's like that resource, we've shut the door on it and, and it's, it's grown with cobwebs and, and rusted shut. That, like that's literally the way I experience that deep intelligence in the pelvic bowl and there are you know, just, just to take another tack at that, if we have a moment. Oh, yeah. We, you know, we, we look at Aboriginal cultures and marvel at how they have this wealth of knowledge about plant medicines. And we assume that, that it was derived, you know, over millennia by trial and error. And that is absolutely absurd if you think about how that would play out. So, you know, John has a headache. Oh, good. We haven't tried this plant for a headache yet. John, eat this plant. Oh, no, John died. Right? Now, is there anyone else who has a headache because we have another 77 plants to try for a headache? Right? It, no. People feel the plant offering itself in their need. And, you know, there's a there are two books that come to mind. One is Original Wisdom um, by a great guy, Robert Wolf, who um, basically was taught by the Sungoi culture of Malaysia how to know the world in this other way, how to come into the whole of your intelligence, not 
not supervised by the abstractions, but but serviced by those abstractions, supported by those abstractions as they are allowed to integrate. And then you feel the present. And how can you not feel the present? The whole of the universe is felt by every molecule in your body. But we so mistrust feeling that we, you know, if we go there, we go halfway there and then say, oh, this isn't working and go back up into our heads. And we never make, you know, never. It's not that we never, but it's it's so countercultural to make that journey down through the body, to find that place literally on the pelvic floor, literally on the perineum, which is at the very center of the pelvic floor. That that journey that enables you to come back home to yourself, that enables you to surrender to the wholeness that lives in you and through you and find its companionship. That description, what you just went through, for me, for some reason, brought it all full circle. I, I, I don't, I actually, I felt it, which is so mm-hmm. weird, all this talk about feeling. First of all, your your depiction of when I was hiking and things went not according to plan, uh, <laughs> I, I can remember it. I can remember. And you're right. And I got frustrated and all that. The other thing I will say is the one time I remember a feeling, uh, like the one feeling I carry with me from that trip is I was going down a switchback uh, and where you can't see that far in front of you. And I turn the corner and there's the biggest deer, this buck Mm -hmm. I've ever seen. And one of the biggest animals I've ever seen. And it's just, I mean, it's just standing there 10 feet from me. And it didn't run. I didn't run. It just looked at me. I can remember it. Now, in this moment, I didn't think, hey, let's take a mental snapshot. I was just, it was the reason I went to have moments like this, right? And I can remember, I can feel like the the way the sun was coming through the trees and I, I can there's so much I can remember, so much information in that one moment. And as you were talking, it's like that is what feeling is. And then when I got to the top, that's what thinking is. And <laughs> you know, I'm bought in. I'm so bought in. And so I have a few things. First is you know, all of this is covered in in your new book, Radical Wholeness, The Embodied Present and the Ordinary Grace of Being. To those listeners who are interested or intrigued, I also want to say that the book is written brilliantly. And if it wasn't portrayed that way in this interview, it's 100% because of me. And my, uh-huh. I mean, this is a tough subject to wrap my head around. And, I, and I've tried. The The other thing I want to ask is, how can we start to get into the body? And, and you mentioned that the, the pelvic bowl and maybe that's where it is or exercises or just one or two things so we can start to feel this and integrate it into our lives. I'd, first, I'd really invite people to uh, visit my website because there are, you know, resources there. Um, there's, there's a, there are articles and stuff that, that support this really countercultural return to the body, surrender to wholeness that that I you know I think I think what as a culture, as individuals, what's needed is a new way of being. 
And we're not going to get to that new way of being in any top-down manner. It's just not going to happen. Um, the other thing on my website, you know, I've got a I've got a series of eight audio exercises that are designed to help people exactly through that. To to you know, it's that it's that journey back to the body's intelligence. Um, and each of them is sort of a different take on that, a different way of approaching it. Uh, and, you know, the third and last thing I'd suggest is the breath is just such an important link to the body, to the world. If And we shut down the breath and we stop the breath and we desensitize the breath and we, you know, we breathe in a top-down manner. I mean, we push, we think, Oh, a deep breath, I know how to do that. And we push the breath down into the body from the top. And it's such a different thing to have your awareness deep, deep in the pelvic bowl and release the body to the in-breath mm. and release the body to the out-breath. The body doesn't want to be muscling through the breath. It knows how to release to the breath. And if you do that, if you can release the body to the breath, you'll find you're releasing the body to the present. And there you are. It's a beginning. I love it. And I, I think I'm, so is it the philipshepherd.com? Yeah, Philip with one L, Shepherd spelled the way the guy who looks after sheep is spelled. Mm -hmm. Exactly, philipshepherd.com. And we'll absolutely link to that. So Philip with one L, shepherd.com. And I'm here. Um, where, how, how exactly do we get to those audio? Oh, uh, you're on You're on the website? Yeah. There's a, mm -hmm. there's a, a little tab, I think it says shop. Um, at yep. the top. Yeah. And, and there's, there are two things there. There's one is a, an, a, a talk I gave in England that was recorded. And the other is eight exercises, eight audio exercises that you, um, you know, you can download and listen to over and over and over forever. Fantastic. Philip, it's been a, an honor to have you on. I, I really appreciate it. I am incredibly excited to go down this road even further, to learn more. I really am um, the, the way it resonates. And I think it will as well with our listeners. As we mentioned, um, philipshepherd.com, which does have a lot of great resources right on the homepage. There's some videos that you can watch that kind of uh, start, you know, start the understanding around this. I also wanted to ask if there's anywhere else that you would like to guide our listeners um, in addition, if there's any other resources, like I, I wrote down the original wisdom, um, but you know, it's such a fascinating topic to learn more about anywhere else that you would guide those interested in it. Of course, your book, Radical Wholeness, which is a must go to, um, anything else for us? Well, there is, I mean, there is my first book, um, new self, new world, mm. which is, um, which is the foundation for all my work. There's a, you know, there's a, there's a movie that's available online. It's a free download called Dancing in the Flames. Huh. And it's, uh, it's sort of, um, Andrew Harvey is interviewing, um, Marion Woodman. And I would really direct people to that because I don't know of anyone more embodied than Marion Woodman. Uh, she's a Jungian um, analyst, but but just a vibrantly alive, brilliant, down to earth uh, 
human being and to watch to watch that movie it's a brilliant movie huh. um is to experience the freedom of embodiment uh as personified by marion woodman that's awesome i can't wait to watch that so i will definitely tune into that and we will link to that as well well philip again thank you so much for your time i've really appreciated it and uh best of luck with this brand new book it's terrific um, you know, I've, I got a chance to read it and I know that before it comes out, you might wonder how it's received, but I can tell you, I, I think it's a real piece of art. So thank you for that. Oh, that's awesome, Chris. Thank you so much. And thank you for this. It's just been, uh, it's been so much fun talking with you. Absolutely. And also I'll reach out uh, on my trip to Toronto. I think it's, I think it's late January. I'm going to have to check, but if I get in early, um, I'd love to at least see the Island. I mean, definitely. Oh, let, let's do it. Let's Absolutely. do it. All right. Thanks so much, Philip. Have a fantastic rest of your day. Hey, thanks. You too, Chris. All the best. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Philip Shepard. Philip's book, Radical Wholeness, The Embodied Present, and The Ordinary Grace of Being can be found at your local bookstore and on Amazon when it comes out on November 21st. As always, if you decide to purchase the book through Amazon, please don't forget to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Any purchase you make through the link comes at no extra cost to you and it greatly helps support the show. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, you can head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review over there. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at SmartPeoplePod. As always, you can head over to SmartPeoplePodcast.com and check out the old episodes, sign up for the newsletter, all that great stuff. All right, that's it for us this week. Thank you again for tuning in. We've got some great interviews coming up, so we will see you all next episode.